The scripture reading this morning is John 15, 18 through chapter 16, 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me. Oh, sorry. Please stand. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated, you, hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. This is God's word. Well, if you have your Bibles, please keep them open to John chapter 15. And let's pray together this morning. Father God, as we read these words of your Son this morning, these words proclaimed to disciples who would shortly be shocked uh, by the events that are about to unfold, we pray that the hope that's in these words would be evident to us, that we might be able to see it and receive from you uh, courage that we will need to face difficulty in this life as we live as your people in a world that has rejected you. Lord, bring the truth of these words to bear on our hearts today. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. In 1415, a man named Jan Hus was sentenced to death by burning at the stake. He had been condemned for preaching the gospel and for questioning some of the teachings of the Catholic Church. When he was led to the place where he was to be executed, he was given one last chance to recant of his teaching. And he replied with a prayer, saying, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. 
I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. And then, as flames engulfed him, he is reported by witnesses to have died singing psalms of praise. His courage in death and his desire to praise God, even in such a terrible circumstance, made him a hero to many. But he was only joining a long line of Christians fearlessly standing for the gospel. In the earliest days of the church, after Jesus had ascended into heaven and left his disciples with the responsibility of leadership, they faced incredible pressure to quit. As Acts chapter 5 records, one of their early clashes with Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, we see that they were arrested, threatened with death if they persisted in preaching about Jesus, and then that they were beaten. Yet when they leave, their attitude is perhaps not what we might expect. The author of Acts records that when they, had called them in, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It is remarkable that these men, who had not long before this moment fled from Jesus' side, for fear of their own safety. Now they are regularly being threatened with death, they are being imprisoned and beaten, yet they continue proclaiming the truth about Jesus. But what's even more remarkable to me is that they leave rejoicing. Someone might say that they are rejoicing because they weren't killed. They were only beaten. But the passage makes sure that we don't misunderstand. It says that they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. It's a recurring theme in the New Testament. Peter wrote to a fledgling church, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. The writer of Hebrews wrote to believers, encouraging them to recall the former days when after you came to faith in Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And then he says this, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Christians in the first century were brave, to say the very least, and they endured a lot. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They rejoiced to join Christ by, by sharing in his suffering. And when they were met with violence or social pressure or imprisonment or economic consequences, they responded to them all with steadfastness and with joy. Seeing their courage, I think, inspires us. But seeing their relentless joy makes us wonder, how did they do that? How did Jan Hus do it? How did Paul write in 1 Corinthians, we hunger and we thirst, we are poorly dressed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. What did they have that made them so courageous, so strong, and so joyful in the face of such trouble, and how can I get some of it? How can I meet suffering as they did? And if persecution casts its shadow over my life, what will keep it from killing my joy? Jesus speaks to that question this morning from this passage in John that we're looking at today. He's in the middle of teaching his disciples 
preparing them for his arrest and his death and the road which lies ahead for each of them. It is not a pretty picture. They are going to suffer for his name. They are going to be hated and rejected and killed. I imagine that hearing these words, they must have been confused. Up to this point, they have not wrapped their brains around the fact that Jesus is about to be arrested and killed, though it is only hours away. They are still thinking that Jesus is indestructible. They have seen him slip away from those who want to do, his, to do him harm. They have seen his incredible power. So they figure that there is no real threat to his safety. And because they are his friends, as he's just told them in the passage we looked at last week, they figure that they're going to be safe too. But Jesus, in his compassion for them, in his love for them, does not want them to be unprepared for what lies ahead, even if they are unaware of what lies ahead. And that is his compassion for us as well. Because no one is ever prepared for suffering. It always comes as a shock. No matter what the situation is, regardless of the circumstances, suffering comes as a shock. So Jesus gave the, disciple the, gave the disciples these words to look back on, and he gives them to us as well. He begins by telling them, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's strong language. Jesus is using it to get their attention. He says, hate, not dislike or disapprove of. He was hated, so much so that he was crucified. People wanted him to suffer. And that hate will follow these disciples for the rest of their lives. In fact, most of them will be killed, just as he is about to be killed. All of them will be abused, arrested, threatened, ostracized, and regularly uh, put in chains. All of them will suffer for their faith and for proclaiming the gospel. This is not exactly the sort of pep talk you expect to hear from the coach before the team takes the field. Jesus is about to leave them with an incredible responsibility, and this is what he decides to tell them? For the disciples, this is a shocking and difficult thing to hear. It is perhaps not what we expect Jesus to say if we're, if we're looking for his encouragement. And it may leave us wondering how these 11 disciples were spurred on to faithful and fearless service after hearing it. We might expect them to go running for the hills. But Jesus actually says in the first verse of chapter 16, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Rather than driving them away, Jesus' honest teaching here strengthens them. Somehow, it is these shocking words that Jesus will use to keep them from faltering when the shadow of persecution falls on them. And for 2,000 years, Christians throughout church history have found the same strength in these words. So that's my goal this morning, that we would draw courage from these words, from Christ's teaching here, that we would take seriously his call to join him in suffering for the sake of the gospel so that God would use our lives to bring people to faith and salvation and to reveal the satisfying glory of Christ through the relentless joy of his people. We'll look at the ways that Jesus explains to his disciples what is ahead for each of them, and then we will ask what encouragement is revealed here for all Christians who will come after. First, Jesus tells the disciples that they should not be surprised or dismayed when they are persecuted. 
This is consistent with his teaching elsewhere, such as in Matthew 24, when he told his disciples very directly, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. To follow Christ is not an easy path. For the disciples, at least, it will mean hate flowing from every corner of the earth. He never promises them comfort or prosperity or family or even houses to go home to. Instead, throughout his ministry, he repeatedly emphasizes that all of those things will be in jeopardy for all who follow him. A servant is not greater than his master, he says. And the message is, I was persecuted. I'm about to be put to death. So why should you expect to be treated any differently? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Though that's maybe not what we want to hear from him, it is a deeper and better encouragement than if he didn't say it at all. Faith in Christ is a faith that looks through the fog of pain and persecution to the glory of restoration. That is the template established by Jesus' own life. And it is the path that his people walk also, taking up their crosses daily to follow him. Jesus does not promise that it will be easy. In fact, he assures that it will be more difficult than anyone bargained for. But as he rises victorious over death and ascends to glory, he reveals that the pain of being united with him in suffering will be worth it. So the disciples should not be discouraged or dismayed when persecution comes. Instead, they should meet it as those who know that it will come, prepared to endure for the sake of being bound to Christ who went before them. Second, Jesus tells the disciples that he is the judge and that he will be their vindicator because he is the one who has been rejected. The people who will reject the 11 disciples, who will seek to do them harm and silence their preaching, are people who have first rejected Christ himself. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus confronted a man named Saul on his way to hunt Christians in a town called Damascus. And he asks him, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is saying something incredibly profound here. Christians, believers, the people of Christ are so close to him that an attack against them is an attack against him. That's an important thing to consider. Jesus explains to the disciples in verse 21 of our passage, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. He's telling his disciples, they don't hate you, they hate me. And because you are mine, you'll be in their crosshairs. That may not sound encouraging at first, but it is a promise that the disciples belong to Christ and that they are so closely bound to him that when the world looks at them, they see Christ. So the attacks that they will endure will ultimately be attacks against Christ, who will not fall. He says in verse 24, if, any, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. 
Jesus is, of course, not suggesting that before he came, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem was without sin. But now they have seen the Son of God. They have heard his voice calling them to repentance and humility and faith, and they have said no. In fact, he says that they hated Christ and his Father. There is a comfort, I think, for the disciples in knowing that they are being sent into a battle that is ultimately not theirs to win. It is Christ's. He is the one who is hated. And he will win. He has promised that even the mightiest forces of hell will not prevail over his church. Attacks against him are like shots from a bow and arrow against a battleship. He will not be defeated. So when the disciples face persecution, they can rest in remembering that they are held closely by Christ, their judge and their vindicator, whose strength is unmatched even when theirs may fail. Third, Jesus tells his disciples that they will not be alone. He knows that when they cannot turn to him to see his face and hear his voice, they will feel lost. They will feel aimless and adrift like a team without a leader to guide them. But they will not be alone. Instead, they will have with them the Spirit which Jesus has promised to send them, and he mentioned and talked about back in chapter 14. The Spirit will be to them a helper, a guide, and an advocate. He will convict them of their need for forgiveness and remind them that they have received it in Christ. Here, though, as Jesus teaches the disciples about the hardships ahead of them, he reveals another aspect of the Spirit's presence with them. Jesus wants his disciples to know that the Spirit will be to them as great a comfort as he himself is. He does this by using specific language to describe the Spirit, language that he's already used in this gospel to describe himself. He tells the disciples that he will send the Spirit from the Father. Back in chapter 8, he explained that he had been sent from the Father. And the Spirit will be the Spirit of truth, which calls to mind Jesus' own announcement that he is the truth from John 14. And the Spirit will bear witness about Christ himself. He will continually point to Christ to echo his word and lead as Christ leads. With the Spirit, they will never be cut off from Christ. They will never be adrift or alone, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. Even when they cannot see how God might be at work for good, the Spirit of truth will remind them that He caused even the death of His Son to be used for His good purposes. And when they struggle to find the words to say, Jesus promises that by the Spirit, you too will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus encourages the disciples by telling them that even though the days ahead will be hard, they will not face them alone. Lastly, Jesus wants them to know that he is sovereign. He says to them, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away, which suggests that he knows they will be tempted to walk away. Judas betrayed Jesus for a few coins. How much greater will the pressure be on these 11 when their lives are on the line? How much more tempted will they be to say that it isn't worth it when they lose family members and friends, when they are imprisoned and awaiting execution? Jesus knows 
that the pressure will be more than they can bear, and that it is only by his word that they will persevere. He tells them that they will be put out of the synagogues. I've already seen that take place back in chapter 9. It was a brutal punishment that cut people off from civic life. It cut them out of relationships with family and denied them most opportunities to work and support themselves. But more than that, Jesus tells his disciples that they will even be killed. An hour is coming, he says, when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. He doesn't say someone may try to kill you. He says when they try to kill you, it will be because they think they are honoring God. That is exactly what drove Saul to persecute Christians until Jesus confronted him on his way to Damascus to continue his campaign. Saul was a man of deep faith and conviction, and he was convinced that he was serving God by trying to stamp out the Christian movement by any means necessary. Jesus paints a dire picture. No matter how bad the disciples think it might be, Jesus wants them to know it's going to be worse. Yet he is honest with them. He doesn't sugarcoat things, because when the moment comes... When their persecutors catch up with them and put the sword to their throat, he wants them to to remember this moment. I've said these things to you, he says, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the third time that Jesus has said this. The first was in chapter 13 when he told them that he was about to be betrayed by Judas. The second was in chapter 14 when he told them that his time with them was short and afterwards said, I have told you this before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Three times Jesus tells the disciples about awful things that are about to happen each time because he wants them to look back and remember that he not only predicted what would take place, but ordained it and brought it about by his sovereign will. He wants them to cling to this when they suffer, to remember that nothing escapes or overwhelms the providence of God. When they find themselves in chains or worse, it will not be because God's plan has been defeated. Even in their suffering, when they face the hatred that Jesus tells them is coming, they can rest in knowing that he is moving all things toward glory. They'll be able to look back at this night and the events that followed, remembering that Jesus, in his power and the love that drove him, brought them, brought these events about in order to carry carry out his plan of redemption, their redemption. The sovereignty of Christ will be their comfort even as the cost of following him mounts. And it will be the comfort for all Christians afterward. Church history is full of fearless believers standing on the word of Jesus to serve and suffer joyfully. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a name you might recognize. He is a German pastor who lived during the rise of the Nazi party. He condemned their leaders and spoke out against their policies. As a result, he was persecuted, detained, and frequently threatened And even when he had the chance to flee to America where he would be safe, he arrived, and as soon as he stepped off the boat, he knew he could only stay a few weeks because he knew that God's call for him was to be in Germany, preaching the truth of Christ and calling his countrymen to repentance. So he returned, 
And after he returned, it was only a matter of time before he was arrested again, and this for the last time. He spent his last years in chains before being executed in April of 1945. And a witness who was there to see his execution recorded this. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor and praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. And at the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not afraid. He was resolute. He was not uncertain. He was confident in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, even in the face of his unjust death. And he had this word to stand on. Christ was rejected first, and his death was the path that would lead to glory. Now, united with Christ, it would be so for Bonhoeffer as well. These verses from the end of John 15 and opening of John 16 are not the ones we typically turn to when we need to pick me up. When we're feeling down and we need to be reminded of Christ's affection for us, we don't turn here usually. You'll probably never see the words, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first, printed on a coffee mug or hung in a frame over a fireplace. And these verses are not the ones that we turn to in the midst of our suffering. It is a stern warning, a command even, to count the cost of following Christ because there is a cost, and it may be higher than we thought at first. But there are plenty of preachers who say otherwise. There's no shortage of people who teach and preach in Jesus' name that he came to make our lives easier, more comfortable, and more prosperous. They argue that as long as we are faithful to Jesus, we are strong in our belief and we are obedient and generous givers, then Jesus will guard our lives and prevent us from suffering. But that is not a promise that Jesus makes. Instead, the implication here is that the more faithful we are to him, the more we will suffer like him. Yet, even though these words may be difficult, there is great encouragement here. Even though these words will never be printed on a coffee mug or hung over a fireplace, there is great encouragement here. Most of us will never face the sort of persecution that the disciples did during their lifetimes. That is a mercy from God, and we should be thankful for it. In America, for three centuries, a relationship with God has not been a social or cultural liability. Instead, for most of that time, it has been generally celebrated. Jesus reminds us that that is an exception. For most Christians, at most points in history, faithfulness to Christ has been very costly. Though we have probably not felt it, the truth of that statement is more obvious and vivid today than it has been ever before in human history. Sociologists and scholars report that there have been more Christians killed for their faith in the past 100 years than in the 19 centuries of church history that came before combined. Let me say that one more time because it's mind-blowing. There have been more Christians killed for their faith in the past century than in the 19 centuries of church history that came before put together. That is a sobering statistic. So if we read the words of Christ, 
that the world will hate those who belong to him, and we think he's being hyperbolic, we are wrong. We just don't live in a part of the world where the truth of his words is obvious. And that is his mercy toward us, that we are spared that. So we should be thankful for it. And so as America steadily takes steps further away from Christ and a Christ-centered worldview, it should not shock or dismay us that it will be more difficult, perhaps, to live in obedience and faithfulness to him here. When we see Christians canceled because they hold, fa- hold fast to the teaching of Scripture and the Lordship of Christ, we should not be caught off guard by that. We remember, first of all, that life free of trouble is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. The world will never have a problem with Christianity that conforms to its values. It will be smooth sailing for half-hearted Christians because their faith will never cause a stir. But the world will always have a problem with faithful Christianity that condemns sin and calls for repentance and faith and points to Christ as the only hope for humanity that is subject to the wrath of a just and holy God. Identifying with Christ and being his disciple, living according to his teaching and his authority, will always be offensive to a world who has rejected him. Jesus does not suggest otherwise. But these words are not cause for despair. Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote about the fact that Christians should not be surprised to suffer as he did. In fact, he called it a joy and a token of his grace and said, in the hour of cruelest torture Christians bear for his sake, they are made partakers in the perfect joy and bliss of fellowship with him. To to bear the cross, he writes, proves to be the only way of triumphing over suffering. This is true for all who follow Christ because it was true for him. If we are rejected for him, we are united with him in that rejection. If we are hated for him, we are united with him in being hated. And if we suffer for him, we are united with him in that, in that uh, also. If it is true that America's toleration of biblical Christianity is coming to a close then we should meet the days ahead with resolution, with kindness toward those who reject us, and with joy to be united with Christ. He said to his disciples, you are not of this world, as in, you are never going to fit in here. This place is not your home. We shouldn't expect to be celebrated here or to find the world's approval. We know that he does not neglect the suffering of his people or ignore injustices. We know that he is our judge and our vindicator. And we know that we are not alone. When we feel the shame of guilt and the hope of forgiveness, it is the Spirit at work in us. When the words of Christ bear their full weight on our hearts to bring us through suffering and give us hope, that is the work of the Spirit in us. And when we find courage to stand for the truth in the midst of those who deny it, that is the Spirit at work in us. We are not alone. In fact, we are closer to Christ now by the indwelling of His Spirit than the disciples were as they looked Him in the face in John 15. And we remember that Christ, in His sovereignty, is our judge and our vindicator. There is no affliction that may come, no challenge we might face, no enemy who could take from us the joy that we have in knowing that Christ works all things.
for good and glory. He is sovereign, and his people can rest in his good providence. So while this passage may not be hung over fireplaces, it is an encouraging reminder that even as we count the cost of following Christ, which will be higher than we may have bargained for, it will always prove worth the cost. If we know and rest in that the fact that we are joining a long line of Christ's people made strong by His strength, made brave by His courage, and made joyful by His faithful presence, we will be encouraged. Christ will always be secure in the face of trial, a comfort in the midst of affliction, and a fortress to his people under siege. He is our hope, not only for all eternity, but in every hour that we live in a world who hates those who belong to him. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we consider these words of Christ, cause them to do their work in us by your Spirit. Make us fearless in the face of trial, kind in the face of anger, and joyful in the face of suffering. Help us to trust you and your Son, whose saving work is finished. Be at work through us, so that when the world looks at us, it sees your Son, and comfort us when we suffer by reminding us that you work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, we ask these things with hopeful expectation in the name of your Son.